Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Political correctness is shutting down freedom of speech and freedom of expression. The Cato Institute's Cato at Liberty survey reveals 71% of Americans say political correctness has silenced discussions society needs to have. And we talked about that. 58% have political views that they're afraid to share. Isn't that interesting? And might that, as I suggested yesterday, not account at least in part for pollsters having some difficulty in recent elections to predict what's going to happen? Because if you've got 6 out of 10 people, and I suspect the percentages between Americans and Canadians quite similar on this, If you've got 60% of people who have political views they're afraid to share and the pollster calls your house and says, who will you vote for and you don't want to tell them, well, you tell them what you tell them. And that may have absolutely zero to do with what you're going to do. The author of the uh, Cato Institute's study is Dr. Emily Eakins, and she joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Eakins, thank you. Thank you for having me. Is this the first such study for Cato, or have you been doing them for a while? No, we've been doing um, national public opinion studies for a while, but this is the first one on this particular topic, looking at free speech and tolerance in the United States. So what was it that, that made you interested enough to pursue this? Did you have a, sort of a visceral sense before you began that, that, that freedom of speech was being challenged by political correctness and effectively challenged by political correctness? Well, we certainly saw during the 2016 presidential election, Donald Trump talked a lot about political correctness. He said a big problem this country has is political correctness, and that really resonated with a lot of his voters. So that was one reason we were interested in it. But there was actually a broader issue at stake that that we wanted to take a look at, and it had to do with some recent firings of individuals from their jobs for expressing their political opinions either outside of work or at work, and getting fired. So an example of this would be the former CEO of Mozilla Firefox, Brendan Eich. Um, several years ago, it came to light that he had donated to a campaign that would ban same-sex marriage in the state of California. Um, now, when he donated this money, um, he was in the majority view at the time. In fact, that particular ballot proposition passed in the state of California. Um, however, um, when it came to light several years later, um, it was very, you know, kind of not acceptable among many um, in kind of the inner circles at Mozilla and many of their users. And so there was this big public outcry, and he was removed as CEO of Mozilla Firefox. And so people were very um, kind of concerned about this. Now, this particular thing is not a, quote, free speech issue, because in the United States, the First Amendment is about what government, per, you know, can prevent you or not prevent you from saying. It's not about whether a private business could fire you. But still, it raises an important question. Do you want to live in a society where if you express certain, if you express kind of regular political views, you're at risk of losing your job if kind of a loud enough minority um, kind of demands uh, your job? Um, and so that was something that we also wanted to take a look at. And as I'm sure you saw in the survey data, it's true. Americans are willing to punish, censor, and regulate one another if they find the other person's opinions 
offensive. And guess what? That's why 58% of Americans say they have political opinions that they're afraid to share. You know, that's really alarming. And I would suspect that there would be significant numbers of people in this country who would say, if you ask them, look, if, if you expressed your political opinions freely and openly to the people you work with, to your boss, never mind to the clients of the company, because you wouldn't do that unless there was a specific reason to, like a conversation drifted in that direction. But if you expressed your political beliefs and leanings openly and directly with your fellow employees and with your employer, would you worry that you might lose your job? I suspect there would be people in this country, maybe significant numbers, who would say, oh, yeah, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't dare do that. And that's, boy, that's the thin edge of the wedge, isn't it? Right. And, and, and many people would say, look, you know, it's perfectly within the rights of the business to do that. And I would say, you are correct. It is within the rights of the business to do that. But we have to ask ourselves, um, most people work, right? Most people have jobs. And if everyone's afraid that has a job to express their political views uh, about mainstream issues like immigration, um, it was one of the big things we asked people on our survey who said they had views they were afraid to share. We asked them, well, what views? are you afraid to share? Could you, could, you, could you tell us in your own words what they are? Now, a lot of people said, like, I'm going to tell you. Um, but the people who did answer the question, I went, we went through and coded their responses, and a lot of them had things to say about immigration. Um, now, in the United States, there are many people that are currently residing in the state that, uh, it, it, in the country that do not have um, authorization to do so. They're called illegal immigrants or unauthorized immigrants or whatnot. Um, on our survey, we found that 80% of liberals believe that it is hate speech or very offensive to say that the U.S. should deport illegal immigrants. Only about a third of Republicans agree with that sentiment. Now, just juxtapose that for a moment. So 80% versus 30%. So one group of people think to even espouse a policy position. Now, even if you disagree with it, it's just a policy position. To even espouse that is on the level of hate speech or offensive speech, then you're going to be afraid to share those views. Now, if everyone's afraid to talk about immigration, how on earth do you have a productive public policy debate when the Democratic voters of a country are afraid they'll lose their job if they talk about those sensitive topics? And, you know, and uh, can you stay with us a little longer? Yes. Okay, I, I want to take a break, but uh, I, I want to say this before we take the break. If, if I'm not mistaken... The degree to which people are afraid to express their opinions, be it political or otherwise, because of political correctness or because of the sharply delineated liberal conservative line or, or, or views, uh, that's a fairly recent phenomenon. We're talking about the last 10, 12 years, are we not, or even less? Well, it depends. So, on I mean, to this extent, to this extent. I mean, in the, in the 1960s in the United States, the people who were afraid to speak were feminists, atheists, and communists. Um, you know, we saw McCarthyism in the United States spring up, where it was like a witch hunt for a communist that was secretly working in Hollywood or at your business. So I think it's more that it's changed who is, um, what ideas are considered unacceptable and should be punished. Mm -hmm. okay. um, it's certainly shifted um, who's culturally dominant from the right to the left, um, in terms of what ideas are not allowed. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. 71% of Americans say political correctness has silenced discussion society needs to have. 58% have political views they're afraid to share. 
So uh, our guest is Dr. Emily Eakins. She's the author of this survey, the study. Dr. Eakins, you know, so we have 71% of Americans saying that political correctness has stifled speech or conversation or discussions we need to have, but we're not having them. And I'm, I'm not so sure whether it's political correctness or whether it's political correctness uh, combined with a clearly delineated liberal versus conservative point of view, which is what you just talked about before the break. Yeah, you know, I think in part of it is that so many of us allow ourselves to see political disagreement as we blow it way out of proportion. Instead of just saying, oh, I disagree with you on this particular policy, instead we just assume these negative motives about each other. We we kind of blow it out of proportion. Um, and as a consequence, we've seen on college campuses throughout the United States, um, students are shutting down lots of invited campus speakers because the things that they think they will say or things that they have said uttered one time in their life um, is so offensive that the students cannot handle having them speak at the university, and so they shut them down. So it's not just about firing people from their jobs, um, but it's also about just trying to shut down speech that you don't like. And I think what's happened, um, at least in the United States, is that this is just it has reached such a high decibel level that people know that they can't talk about certain issues for fear of kind of their coworkers, uh, their classmates, you know, other people in their community mistaking them and assuming they have nefarious intentions. And so that shuts down debate. Uh, 59% of liberals say it's hate speech to say transgender people have a mental disorder. Only 17% of conservatives agree. That's one thing you found. 39% of conservatives believe it's hate speech to say the police are racist. Only 17% of liberals agree. 80% of liberals say it's hateful or offensive to say illegal immigrants should be deported. Only 36% of conservatives agree. 87% of liberals say it's hateful or offensive to say women shouldn't fight in the military combat roles while 47% of uh, conservatives agree. There is this strong delineation, liberal and conservative. With that being what it is, uh, is is anybody really talking to each other about significant things any longer? Or or honestly speaking about them? You know, I think, you know, the numbers that you just read perfectly, I think, explain why this can be so problematic. Liberals and conservatives disagree about what speech is offensive and hateful. And so when people try to kind of shut down or censor, you know, how could you say that? How can you think that? Um, When they try to censor each other's political opinions, it shuts down conversations that society needs to have. Um, but, But the thing is, is that we don't, as a society, agree about what is offensive. And that is where this is so difficult. I think a lot of people assume that everyone agrees with them about what is offensive. So an example, you just read a number just a moment ago about um, 59% of liberals think it is hate speech to say that a transgender person has a mental disorder compared to 17% of conservatives. So about a decade ago, that was kind of the general psychological diagnosis. Um, but now people have changed their view on this issue, or some people have changed their view on this issue, while others have not. Um, there is a well-known conservative commentator here in the United States named Ben Shapiro. He has made this statement. This is his belief that tra- uh, transgender people have a mental disorder. 
he went to give a speech at UC Berkeley, a major university in California, and the students almost shut down the school with violence. Yeah, we saw it was that. A major issue. Yeah, we yeah, have a we we had all the security. Yeah, Dr. Weekins, we have about twenty seconds. What's your takeaway? I mean, we've talked to us about it, but what's the what's the fundamental takeaway? The takeaway is we can't regulate each other's speech because nobody agrees really what is offensive speech. It's fascinating. It really is fascinating reading. Thank you so much for for doing it, and thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. All the best. Is Dr. Emily Eakins, and it's the Cato Institute. C A T O, Cato at Liberty. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. My emails inbox is populated by opinion about this um, Algerian gentleman suing Canada for $50 million for Canada um, being complicit with the United States in the torture that he says he underwent at Gitmo. Canadian agents getting information from him or about him through the Americans. Canadian officials came to interview me on two occasions. They not only shared information about me with my American torturers, but even tried to get information out of me that had nothing to do with Canada in order to help my American torturers. I refused to answer questions. After that, I was subjected to a worse treatment by the Americans. Algerian man, says the suing the federal government for, this is Canadian press, for abuses he says he suffered at the hands of American security forces after he left Canada 15 years ago. The unproven allegation by Jamel Amezian, who was never charged or prosecuted, raises further questions about Canada's complicity in the abuse of detainees at Guantanamo Bay, a topic his lawyer said demands a full-scale public inquiry. Why is everybody repeating that line? That is so loaded so unfair to Canada. The, listen to this. The unproven allegations by Jamel Amezion, who was never charged or prosecuted, raise further questions about Canada's complicity in the abuse of detainees at Guantanamo Bay. So the allegations are unproven, but it's quite okay, whoever wrote this, quite okay to... Uh, Declare Canada complicit in the abuse of detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Really? Mr. Amazon also said he, he, he didn't really know he could sue Canada until he heard about his friend Omar Cotter. So, yeah. We're going to talk about that next hour. Uh, earlier this week, another terror rampage in New York City as Saifulo Saipov... An ardent ISIS follower plowed a rental truck into cyclists, killing eight and pedestrians. Still expressing no remorse. He wanted an ISIS flag at his hospital bed. Who are these people? So I was asking myself, who are these ISIS adherents? Who are the young males and females who've fallen under the spell of such a murderous outfit? And is everyone who is repeatedly exposed to negative messaging, particularly if it may contain a grain of perceived cultural or religious relevance, a possible recruit for violent extremism. Joining me on the program, and we're always uh, honored when he does, is former Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the uh, former commanding officer 
for Canada's Counterterrorism Military Unit Joint Task Force 2. Colonel Day is the president and founder of Reticle, Tactical Excellence and Strategic Relevance, Reticle Ventures Canada. Um, Colonel Day, if I may, thank you very much for the time. And, and I've never, I, I don't know if I've said this to you, I must. Thank you for your service to this country. We're less than a week away from Remembrance Day. Thank you so much for what you've done for all of us. Well, thank, thank you, Roy. It's always a pleasure to join you and the listeners. And I'd like to also extend uh, the thanks to all those those men and women that are still serving Canada, whether that be law enforcement, corrections, in the military, wherever they are, whatever they're doing, I wanted to extend that as well, an appreciation to what they continue to do on behalf of all of us. Well said. Colonel Day, before I talk to you about ISIS, do you have a, a view, a thought about this $50 million lawsuit from someone who applied for refugee status to Canada, was never given the refugee status, and, and you heard, you, and you know the story. What, what about the, I mean, Nate Whitling, his lawyer, says there are two more uh, people ready to launch similar lawsuits. What do you think of all of this? Well, again, this is a highly complex issue, Roy, and we and we find ourselves again right in the middle of when we open the Pandora's box of offering settlements um, when working through these highly complex 21st century challenges. Sure, you get one, you get many, and this is one of the main reasons why Canada does not and will not uh, negotiate with terrorists. Because once you start down that path, you've opened yourself up to repeated um, people coming back at you for money for something that may or may not have actually happened. So it's, it's, it's very difficult. And, um, yeah, this is, this is probably, again, just the beginning of many things that we will see. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few days ago on, on Halloween, there was this awful incident in New York City. Eight people lost their lives. They were out having a nice evening, walking, riding alongside uh, the river in, uh, in New York. And uh, ISIS takes responsibility, and the individual who committed the offense or allegedly committed the offense, Saifullah Saipov, uh, he wa- he expresses his admiration for ISIS. He wanted an ISIS flag by his bed, and he expresses absolutely no remorse for what he did. And 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 as I talk to people, I get the sense their tolerance level for this type of act is really maxed out now, really maxed out. And and I have to ask myself, who are these people? Who are these people who actually are so fascinated? by an organization like ISIS or al-Qaeda, that they will join and that they will commit heinous acts in the name of these, uh, of these murderous organizations. What, is, is there an well, answer? Uh, well, I, I don't know if there's one simple answer, but what I would suggest is in, in most cases, uh, we will find most of these people are um, mentally challenged, um, maybe not the smartest or deepest uh, in our collective gene pool on this planet. And in some cases... We should be thankful that most terrorists and and extremists are not that smart, because when they start using what we would call dual-use technology, which is what a vehicle is, something that is not meant to kill or maim, when they start employing dual-use technology against uh, innocence, um, then we start having significant security challenges. So, yes, a lot of these people are, uh, I want to hit that again, Fortunately for us to date, just not the smartest people in the world, not the most socially balanced people in the world, and um, that that's, you know they come from disadvantaged backgrounds quite often, and they uh, come from the, the lower end of the socioeconomic uh, spectrum. So they're just they're just disenfranchised, and they're looking to hook their their hate train 
to any anything so they can carry out and do these copycat heinous crimes. So one of the questions that I asked earlier today is this, is everyone who's repeatedly exposed to negative messaging, particularly if it contains a, a grain of perceived cultural or religious relevance, is, is everyone who's repeatedly exposed to this type of negative messaging a possible recruit for violent extremism? No, I, I wouldn't suggest everyone. I think you've got a predisposition to being readily, easily um, influenced. You are probably, by all accounts, not a critical thinker, someone that can hold two or three different opinions in, the, in your mind at the same time and work through them. So, uh, like I said, if, if, and if you look at even just the mass shootings in the U.S. as a general rule, they're almost up to basically one mass shooting a day in the U.S. So this is not only a terrorism or extremism problem. This is a, a situation across Western society where we are having a hard time having civilized dialogues and um, being able to disagree without being disagreeable, if you will. So this is, this is not unique to terrorists or extremist elements. We are having a significant challenge in the 21st century having, having dialogues about those things we disagree on. I was thinking last night about the uh, interview we were going to do today, and, uh, and then it, it occurred to me that we have 60, roughly 60 members of ISIS or ISIS-type groups who are back in Canada now, and they might have been on the front lines of conflict in, uh, in Iraq or in Syria, certainly in Iraq. They may have actually could have had a situation where Joint Task Force 2 members would have been fighting Canadians who, who joined ISIS. Yeah, absolutely, and this is the, uh, the, the what, what we're finding are these homegrown extremists who've gone offshore somewhere to get battle-hardened or to get some experience and come back home and then seed uh, those terror plots against us. Like That is absolutely a threat. It is a significant national th- security threat to Canada. The authorities are aware of it. But again, I think as you and I have spoken many times, we are just uh, grossly under-resourcing our intelligence, law enforcement, and military capabilities in this country. So they cannot possibly follow every lead, follow everyone that we know is a challenge, because we just don't have the, the resources to do it. So what's, what's interesting now, as the, the so-called Daesh Caliphate crumbles in on itself, which, which we all knew it would, quite honestly... Where is it going to pop up next? Where is that Hydra going to pop up? I would, I would not be surprised to see North Africa in particular start to get hotter than it's been for a while. So that's just one more example. Once you defeat it or start to degrade it in one location, that Hydra monster will pop up in another location. It's, it's like the nature a, of, of extremism. It's like a metastasizing, isn't it? Absolutely. Which, which is why it's, it's unfortunate but when we start coming up against these terrorist and extremist elements, ideally we wish to, to capture those folks, but sometimes you just need to kill them because they are not people that can be rehabilitated in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And, and in, in the U.K., they are now looking at providing social housing. Uh, British terror subjects, this is from the IB Times, British terror suspects and ISIS fighters will be given council houses and jobs to stop attacks. And I, I, I don't want to be overly cynical, but my response was, good luck with that. Well, again, we, we come back to you. You look at uh, the British, uh, UK, and, and European fractures across their society. They have got a generational challenge ahead of them. Mm-hmm. Like, it is a significant problem in Europe. 
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. In the news now, a gunman opened fire at a Baptist church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, before being taken down by police. Reading from Global News... Dot com. A witness told local news outlet that he saw a man walk into the First Baptist Church around 11.30 a.m. Witnesses later told a CBS affiliate that several people were shot during the incident. Authorities have confirmed reports of the shooting and told reporters that there's currently no active threat. County officials told CNN, or a county official told CNN, he was told more than 20 killed and 20 wounded, but that is unconfirmed. Back to Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, Canada's National Counterterrorism Special Forces Unit. Colonel Day, either way, uh, whether whoever it turns out to be, here's a, here's a terror attack. Well, again, as we just happened to talk to before the break, these incidents down in the U.S. in particular, um, at different scales and scopes are happening daily in, in the U.S. Fortunately, we do not have those challenges here in Canada because those active shooters are extremely, those lone wolf attacks are, are almost impossible to stop in advance. It's a, it's a horrid, horrid reality because you never, it, know, it is, you never know where the next place is going to be or who, who the next victims are going to be. And that, I suppose, is the, uh, the appeal to the people who are, who are committing these acts. Colonel Day, you, you mentioned what, uh, what, what we, that we're underfunded as far as our intelligence um, capabilities are concerned. What do what does Canada need to do? What do we need? What has to be um, uh, devoted or, or you know given to the uh, intelligence agencies? And what is our role going to inevitably be as far as fighting this war on terror is concerned in the years to come? Well, again, what, what I would like to see first of all and foremost is that we as a nation and we as a people with our values must maintain the moral high ground. We must never sacrifice our moral position because, quite honestly, by doing that, we put those same men and women in an ethical dilemma or a morality dilemma that then causes them PTSD or operational stress injuries after the fact. So whatever we do, we need to make sure that we're going to fight these extremists, these criminals, these whatever they may be, on a moral plane that keeps us above that. Secondly, I think it is critical that in this country we take we get serious about what's going on in the 21st century. We put in place a legislative framework which empowers at the lowest level those law enforcement, military, intelligence agencies to get in front of the threat and stay in front of the threat. Uh, thirdly, we got to resource them correctly. When I say resource, I say the, I mean the right diversity of people in these agencies with the right education and the right knowledge set to be able to make informed decisions. So we don't end up with these situations where we've got people suing us for tens of millions of dollars after the fact. Because I think one of the one un- unanswered questions, Roy, is the folks in the early 2000s, those bureaucrats who put these Canadians or so-called Canadians behind bars, um, what's ever happened to them? That would be my question. And lastly, we need to create a true interagency response in this country that pairs up the best of your intelligence, the best of your law enforcement, the best of your military special operations capability, and get in front of this and attack the network, take the network apart, and then do everything we can to safeguard uh, Canadians and our Canadian way of life. Why haven't we done that? Well, I think uh, we have not done that to date because here is the flip side of 
living in a great country like Canada where we don't have the proximity of the threat up against us every day, right? We live in a great nation. We live in a very safe and prosperous nation. So luckily, security is not always front of mind. So, so what is then is those, those resources don't get applied to, to that problem because it's not front of mind for most Canadians. But I will tell you, as we move forward in the 21st century, if we get a terrorist or extremist or major criminal element that can get their hands on a weapon of mass effect or mass destruction, we will be so far behind the power curve with thousands dead that then you wanted to talk about public inquiries earlier in the show. We'll definitely be having some public inquiries, and I'd like to be in front of those things and not responding to them. One more question for you, Colonel Day. When a new client contacts you at, at your firm, Radical, what's usually the first question they ask? What questions they ask us, sorry? Yeah. Well, they're, they're trying to understand complexity and what it is they can do as either an individual, a team, or an organization to help mitigate, um, transfer, or accept some risk. Because clearly security in the 21st century is very challenging, and security is not an end to a means at all, uh, or a means to an end, sorry. Security is often seen as a, a net negative, and we at Radical Crime show that uh, if you do the right security assessments, they're actually net positives or can be a business enablers or individual and family security enablers. All right. Colonel Day, always great speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Have a great uh, Sunday afternoon. Thank you. Oh, you too. Uh, Colonel Steve Day. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. President Donald Trump is uh, in Japan, and uh, this is on his Asia tour. And clearly a message is going to be sent to uh, the North Korean regime, and particularly when uh, the president is in South Korea. And specifically, though, what is the likely impact of this Trump tour? What's the objective? Because it seems you never quite know what the guy in North Korea is up to, and sometimes you don't know what the guy in Washington's up to. Professor Christian Liprecht joins us from Queen's University and from the Royal Military College. Christian, good to speak with you. And uh, what what are the Americans hoping? What's the uh, what's their hoped for end game from this Asia tour? Well, I think this is a containment and a deterrence strategy. Try to get the North Koreans. I mean, you, you have at the same day also the statements by the Joint Chiefs of Staff that really the only way to ultimately disarm the North Koreans is through an invasion. So this is sort of trying to play at the same level as the North Koreans and, and, and try to get them to uh, uh, to pair back their rhetoric and pair back their missile program, pair back their nuclear program, um, and let them know that the Americans are prepared to uh, to respond. And so, you know, one of the ironies is that this is probably um, with, with a regime that basically behaves like a bully, um, talking nicely in the schoolyard, um, isn't the way to convince them to behave better. Um, you have to show that you're prepared to use force in the hope of ultimately being able to uh, dissuade them from using force. And I think Trump is trying to show uh, strength and that he's standing by the region, that he's not just absorbed with Washington, because one of the big concerns is that if Trump gets too absorbed with what's happening in D.C., uh, there's a risk that the Americans might themselves try to start some outside confrontation to distract uh, from all the inquiries and whatnot uh, in D.C. And so I think this is trying to convey that uh, there is a sense of rationality about how Trump is uh, prepared to deal with the region. And he began with uh, with, with a visit with uh, with his own troops and uh, played golf with the Japanese uh, prime minister. 
apparently they didn't keep score. I said earlier, if they didn't keep score, that means Donald Trump lost because if they kept score, Mr. Trump or Mr. Trump won, he'd be telling everybody about it. But what is there a strategic um, reason for beginning in Japan and then working their way to to South Korea? Sure, Prime Minister Abe just won a re-election, a very significant re-election, um, which is kind of unusual in a Japanese context. And he's the one prime minister in recent history uh, who's basically said he's prepared to shore up the Japanese defense forces and to change the infamous article in the Japanese constitution um, that severely constrains what the military can do and how the Japanese military can deploy and can be uh, uh, and can be used. And so there's a lot of belief in Japan that this is the best shot that Japan has to actually get a proper deterrence mechanism within their military. Uh, and I think Trump is there to uh, shore up that position for Prime Minister Abe and also there to shore up Prime Minister Abe uh, after his very significant win. And so this is why I think both of them are making these statements about this is the closest relationship we've ever had, because these two, the Prime Minister and uh, and uh, and the President, I think, on a number of files can actually get along because they do think alike, um, especially on matters of, uh, of strategic deterrence um, and uh, defense. What are the chances that this particular trip, and the objective is, of course, as you said, to, uh, if not intimidate, then certainly alert the North Korean regime to the fact that the Americans are in town and they're not about to just let you get away with whatever you want to get away with. But what are the chances that the North Korean leader uh, may be such an unstable and uh, unpredictable character that he might adopt an oh yeah attitude and the worst case scenario develops? Well, so just the way much of sort of the rhetoric in North Korea is as much directed as an international audience as it is to a domestic audience, uh, I think you get the same phenomenon here. Uh, with the visit by uh, the U.S. president. that uh, There's been a lot of talk, of course, initially after he got elected about what's known as offshore balancing, pulling back uh, some of the troop contingents from abroad and bringing them back to the United States, having other countries pick up more of the tap for their own defense and for the U.S. troop deployment. And so I think this is reassuring the Japanese and the South Koreans that um, uh, at least for their particular case, the U.S. is fully committed to the deployment that it has. It's not going to pull back troops. Uh, it's not asking them to pay for U.S. troops to be stationed there, but it is asking them to do more about their own defense. I think that is implicitly the signal that's being sent. Um, and he has a favorable interlocutor in Japan and uh, um, and in South Korea as well. And so I think this is a way of shoring up the domestic politics to say, look, you know, you're uh, your leaders are looking to do the right thing, and so, at least from Donald Trump's perspective, the right thing, and so I'm there to reinforce that message and that we will stand by you as long as you are also um, uh, trustworthy partners in the defense of your own countries and of the region. What do you make of the fact that Donald Trump is going to be meeting with Vladimir Putin on this trip? Well, it's uh, unavoidable, given that... Uh, uh, the visits to Vietnam and to the Philippines are for the purpose of the APEC meeting and for the uh, uh, Southeast Asia Summit and subsequently the East Asia Summit. Uh, so there's a good opportunity here to try to see if they can find some common ground. And I think many people argue that, yeah, we have serious disagreements with Russia, but that this is a file where we need the Russians to play on side. And the Russians have been using whatever international conflict they can find, whether it's Syria or North Korea, as a wedge issue 
um, with the uh, with the United States. And I think the the message that needs to be sent to Putin is that you can't the strategy of interfering in these conflicts in order to try to fuel the fires and divisions is not going to work. Um, and that it is in your interest to come on side and follow us to pull on the same side of the rope here. And I think that's also the message that, ironically, the Chinese are going to reinforce to uh, to Vladimir Putin in, the, okay. in, in this particular case. So we need to keep talking about uh, about these matters, and this is an opportunity to uh, to keep talking. It would be very difficult, I think, for Donald Trump to go and uh, just visit Moscow, so this is probably as good an opportunity as, as there's going to be for those leaders to um, actually continue to talk face-to-face, because right. ultimately there is no military solution. Professor Christian Lifbrecht, thank you so much for the time. Have a great Sunday. It's been my pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you. We'll come back and tell you about the next hour. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Baby boomers. Canada's aging population could push government deficits to $143 billion by 2025. $143 billion, which according to the Fraser Institute report that I've been reading, suggests that uh, our deficit would grow by, well, three and a half times larger. It would be three and a half times larger than the total federal and provincial government deficits in 2017. And this is because of an aging population. It's uh, it's a it's an interesting issue, and it's one that I guess we're going to have to come to grips with, and governments have not and are not so far. Taylor Jackson is a public policy researcher and co-author of the Fraser Institute's new report on Canadians and uh, the aging population in this country. Mr. Jackson, good to talk to you. Yes, thank you for having me. So did, before I get into the numbers and how you arrived at them and what it means, did that number, $143 billion, if somebody had mentioned that to you before you started breaking it all down, would that have surprised you, or would you have expected something in that range? Well, I think we would expect something in that range. I mean, it's been well known that, that this is sort of coming to Canada. It, it, we're not the first ones to report that we've got, or, you know, our study is the latest numbers, but we've known that this is sort of coming for a long time. And what are governments doing about this? How much planning has uh, gone into the fact that we know that the population is aging, and we know that an aging population will place more strain on the infrastructure? What are governments provincially and federally and even municipally doing? Well, we haven't actually seen governments doing that much. So let's look at one metric, and that's healthcare spending. And this is going to be one of the areas where we're going to expect to see probably the largest increase uh, in government spending due to an aging population. And our projections are that that's going to increase roughly 57% by 2045. Now, healthcare spending is a provincial matter primarily, but it's continually increasing across the provinces. And we haven't yet seen, um, you know, the provinces look at their programs and, and, you know, ask the question, how can we do this in a more cost-effective manner? Consider another area, 
uh, that will likely see a large increase in spending due to an aging population. And that's uh, senior transfer programs like the OAS, Old Age Security, or the GIS, the Guaranteed Income Supplement. And again, projections, projections are that, that uh, those programs are going to increase, their spending for those programs will increase about 47% by 2045. And there's nothing, there's nothing that can be done about this. Because the pop well, there there are options the government's going to have to take, but there's nothing that can be done about the aging population because it's just a fact of life. No, certainly, quite literally. Yes, no, absolutely. It is something we're going to see. And the estimates from Statistics Canada are that from 2010 to 2063, the share of the Canadian population over 65 is going to increase from under 15 percent to over 25 percent. So we're going to get to a point where quarter of Canadians are senior citizens, and they're going to have demands for uh, things like healthcare spending, old age transfers that governments are going to have to cope with. And uh, those senior citizens are going to say, look, don't tell me I shouldn't access this or I shouldn't have access to it because I paid into it all these years with the expectation that it would be there for me and with the promise that it would be there for me, which is what the younger generations are going to say, but it's going to be a ship that's going to be listing uh, because of the uh, the preponderance of weight from the uh, older generations using up the money and using up the resources. No, certainly, and this is something that governments are going to have to recognize. They're going to have to recognize that higher demands are going to be placed on healthcare spending and transfer programs, and they need to start uh, looking into how can they cope with this. Are they going to engage in, in reform of these programs that maybe can offer services in a more efficient manner? Are they going to have to look to raising taxes? Are they going to finance the, the increasing spending through uh, deficits and debt? And, of course, you know, if, if they take on large amounts of deficits or if, if they increase taxes substantially, those could have uh, some serious negative consequences for the Canadian economy. What about the argument that, look, it's, it's going to be a temporary issue because as people reach those senior years, they're not going to live much longer or not live indefinitely. And so there will be a, um, a rise in the graph, a rather spectacular climb in the graph of spending on population. And then as the seniors die, that there's going to be a corresponding quick decline in spending. Well, this is something that's going to ramp up relatively quickly. We're going to get to sort of almost the peaks in these, uh, in these issues about the 2030s, and then it's going to be only a gradual decline from there. That's only 13 years from now. No, certainly it, it is, certainly around the corner. But, you know, the levels of seniors in the, in the Canadian population are expected to remain around 25% for an extended period of decades oh, really? in the future. Yeah. So we're not going to see, a, a, you know, a hump and then a drawdown. It is going to be more of a, a sustained uh, share of the population. As the next generations grow older, I should have thought about that. But, Certainly. you know, that's, that's what I've heard a lot of times. A lot of people say, look, it's going to be a temporary blip. And uh, as you point out, that's not the case because coming up behind are the younger generations who will be coming, uh, becoming older. So what happens? Are we going to inevitably and invariably lose out on social programs? Is it going to be necessary for governments to say to seniors who are doing res- reasonably well financially, for example, if you're a senior and you're making enough money to get by without accessing old age security and, uh, and, uh, and uh, I don't know, maybe even Canada Pension Plan, all of it, um, you're going to have to absorb some of this because we can't sustain it. Uh, I, I ask that question, and then the next thought that pops into mind is what government would, would, would dare to do that because they'd be thinking about the next election. 
No, certainly. Governments are going to face some stark choices coming up here. Specifically, what governments are going to do is something that's beyond the scope of our report. The intention of our report is to help them recognize that the problem is coming. Yeah. But, you know, when you look at it, something like healthcare that is provincially dominated and the provinces have you know, somewhat different healthcare systems, they're going to need to take a hard look at those systems uh, and the variances within them to see how can they they offer these services in a more cost-effective manner. Because you're right, Canadians, as they age, and as I said, we're going to get to a quarter of the population being senior citizens, they are going to have health care demands. And and governments are going to be tasked with meeting those demands. So how can they they do this in a cost-effective manner? Or are they going to have to look to to other policy measures like increasing taxes or debts and deficits? And and we look at a health care system today, it's, it's struggling to meet even the most fundamental requirements. No, certainly again. And as I mentioned, healthcare spending is something that's been increasing uh, for a long time in Canada. And the way it's been increasing certainly suggests that, that governments uh, don't seem to be aware of, of the increase or the wave of spending uh, that will come in, in a relatively short amount of peer, or short amount of time. Mm-hmm. We're talking a decade to a decade and a half where this is going to really ramp up. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Text message, the government is resentful about the money going to be given out once the huge rush of retirements start for the baby boom generation. But I'm sure they're quite happy once they're pensioned off with what they'll be pulling in compared to the average person. Yeah. You think? Do you think? If you're in government, if you're a member of parliament elected to government for, I think it's about 10 years, you're going to be getting about 80 grand a year for the rest of your life tied to the cost of living. And that's not bad. It's particularly good if you've been around a lot longer before they made a few changes in the MP and senator's pension. What What's... <laughs> it's really frustrating is that they vote it for themselves. Yes, indeed. Taylor Jackson is a researcher at the Fraser Institute. He's also the um, co-author of the Fraser Institute's new report on Canada's aging population, $143 billion. Um, our aging population could push the government into deficits of $143 billion by 2045. It wouldn't be as simple, would it? I have to ask this question. It wouldn't be as simple, would it, Mr. Jackson, as telling governments to spend more efficiently? Well, you know, it's a very complicated problem. So, so far, we've only talked about how an aging population is going to lead to spending increases. But it's really a true two-pronged effect that an aging population has on government finances. And the other prong is that as the population ages, we're going to see a relatively lower share of uh, Canadians participating in the labor force. And most economists expect that this is going to lead to slower economic growth and also slow down revenue growth for governments. So government revenue will grow more slowly while spending is actually increasing. So we're going to see a reduction in in possibly in government resources, holding a a number of different things constant. Um, So this is not going to be a, a simple solution for for governments to fix again they're really going to have to look at how can they reform programs should they be increasing taxes should it be financed through through deficits and debt 
or should it be some combination? And these are the, the tough calculations that our government officials at the provincial level, the federal level, are going to have to make. And as you write in your report, the simple math tells us there are no other options. Again, the aging population is coming. As you said, there's nothing we can do about no, that. Can't. At some point, one quarter of Canadians uh, are going to be senior citizens. And again, they are going to demand uh, or have demands for, for the system they paid into. Again, health care yeah. uh, in particular, where we're going to see a large increase in span- spending. Yeah. So governments are going to have to get creative, certainly. A demand and a need uh, in, in many cases. They're been counting on and planning on this particular money, this income from government pensions and planning on health care being available and planning on other social programs being available because the promise was made that they would be. Uh, looking at just one of the costs, just one of the costs, you started with health care, and that's the big one, of course. Uh, you're, you're right. In 2014, governments spent $11,625 on average per senior compared to just $2,664 for Canadians aged 15 to 64. That's almost five times as much per person. That's huge. Again, yes, certainly it is huge. And this is why, as we move to a quarter of the population being on that other side of 65, why we're going to see such an increase in in healthcare spending. And, you know, our seniors are going to need treatment for for chronic illnesses uh, and the like. So, so governments are going to have to ask themselves, how can we best use our resources to, again, provide the services that uh, the Canadian seniors are going to demand? Mr. Taylor, I appreciate your call. Thank you very much. Uh, action is going to be necessary. It's how well that message is delivered and sold to an aging population that is going to be really, really important. Thank you for the time. Yes, thank you for having me on. From the Fraser Institute, Taylor Jackson. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.